Way back when I was at school, for O-Level, we read George Orwell's Animal Farm. And it's a tale in which some farm animals, tired of neglect by an irresponsible and alcoholic farmer, Mr. Jones, fight back and take over the farm. And they plan to create a society in which all animals are equal, free and happy. And they adopt the maxim, four legs good, two legs bad. The chickens object to this and then they're told that wings count as legs, so they're okay. <laughs> and they have seven commandments of animalism. And the most important of these is, all animals are equal. But naturally they need leadership, which is assumed by the pigs. And at first it is Snowball and Napoleon who take it on. And then Snowball gets thrown out of the farm. And under Napoleon, uh, over time, the principles they establish become more and more diluted. The pigs start to resemble and become more and more like humans. They begin to drink alcohol, carry whips, wear clothes, and they even start to walk upright. And eventually the seven commandments of animalism are reduced to just one. That all animals are equal, but some are more equal than others. And, the, and that maxim, four legs bad, two legs good? Four legs good, two legs better. And in the closing scene, the pig Napoleon throws a party for the, for the pigs and other local farmers with whom he's made an alliance. And all's going well. They're laughing, they're joking, they're playing poker. Until Napoleon and one of the other local farmers, Mr. Pilkington, both play the ace of spades in the same hand. And both sides start accusing the other of cheating. And the other animals watch from outside and they look from pig to man and from man to pig and from pig to man again. But, the book concludes, it was already impossible to say which was which. And you could read Animal Farm as a fairy story. In fact, it was... Quite, uh, you know, it's quite, it was the subtitle that George Orwell himself gave it. But of course we know that there's more going on. Orwell himself was a socialist, but was writing a, a critique of the Soviet Union under Joseph Stalin. And so they were some of the, each of the key animals stood for a particular person. Napoleon was Stalin, Snowball was Trotsky, or another pig squealer uh, represents Pravda, the Soviet propaganda newspaper. And once you start to see the key, the book starts to gain new meaning. And although it's not identical, this is probably as close as we get to Revelation. The book with which our Bible is closing. We're reaching the end of our New Testament section of the Community Bible Experience. If you have been following the readings, uh, you've spent a few days this week in the book of Revelation. And if you've stuck at it, well done. It's not easy going. But however easy or difficult you find it to follow, or indeed that you find it easy to follow any of the readings, it has to be said, Revelation is very different to anything else we encounter in our New Testament. 
Our Bible contains lots of different types of literature. There's stories, there's history, there's wisdom writing, there's parables, there's letters, there's songs, there's poetry. And they might all differ in style to how maybe we would, you know, maybe the, how they approach history or how they, each of the, how they, the rules of poetry. They might change over time, but at least they're in some sense recognisable. Revelation is different. It's in, a, it's in the form of a type of literature called apocalyptic, which, fer, which flourished in the last couple of centuries before Jesus and the first couple of centuries after Jesus. But it's actually quite peculiar to that period. And it's not, there's no point in denying it. It's a strange book. It opens with a vision of a white-haired man with a sword sticking out of his mouth and then charges into a landscape of dragons and whores and yeah, into cities real and imaginary, angels, beasts, trumpets, scrolls, both edible and inedible, horsemen, earthquakes, thunder and lightning, tiny locusts with beards. It's hard going. And Christians have tended to have two approaches to it. Some get absolutely obsessed with it, and others avoid it at all costs. And often I feel it would be really good if those two sides swapped sides for a bit. An example from the years of my childhood, though definitely not a kid's book, was this. It was called The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsay. I actually tried to buy a copy so that I could have it as a prop today, uh, but it didn't arrive in time. And, uh, but he's, I don't think he's overly worried. It's over 15 million copies sold, apparently. 15 million and one now. Although I suspect that quite a few of those 15 million are people like me who bought it to use as props. Lindsay dealt with a brand of speculative fiction masquerading as a carefully worked out prediction which showed that clearly and incontrovertibly, absolutely, definitely, 100%, we were at the end of the world. And he had it all worked out. The ten-headed beast was the EEC, which he could see expanding to ten countries. It was six at the time he wrote it. It's like this book's older than me. Christ's visible return would happen within around 40 years or so of 1948. The creation of the modern state of Israel. And that's odd because we're 35 years on. And it still hasn't happened. Lindsay was totally confident. He was totally concerned. And he was totally wrong. There was none of what he predicted came true. The closest he got was that the EEC did become 10 countries, but only for a couple of years when another couple joined. And yet, amazingly, there are people who still take his stuff seriously. However often it is recalibrated and the predictions are altered slightly so that they are Definitely right this time. And Revelation does well in times of fear. And undoubtedly, interest in the book of Revelation will be on the rise at the moment, with all that is happening in Israel right now. 
and people asking the question, are we approaching Armageddon? Now the thing about Revelation is, that pretty much like I said about freedom earlier, Revelation is actually really badly named. Because it isn't very revealing, it's very obscure. And if you ever feel like that, you will not be the first. As far back as the 4th century, a theologian called Dionysius complained that given its title, it wasn't very revealing. Augustine complained that it had far too many obscure passages and not enough clear ones to help us understand the obscure bits. When it came to the time of the Protestant Reformation, Luther and Zwingli would have ditched the book altogether if they could. And it's actually the one book that John Calvin never wrote a commentary for, which is quite telling of itself. And I think part of the problem is the title. The original title was not Revelation, but the Apocalypse. But when we hear the word apocalypse, we're probably thinking something like this. We think catastrophe. The Collins English Dictionary uses the word apocalypse to describe the total destruction and end of the world. And if I went out into the streets of Harrow and asked him, what does it mean? That's what most people would say. But actually it's not what the word originally meant at all. It means revealing, it's unveiling. Revelation's about seeing things as they really are, albeit with heavily symbolic imagery. And when you put it like that, perhaps the most apocalyptic film of the last hundred of years is not something like Apocalypse Now or Dawn of the Dead, but I would say possibly The Wizard of Oz, where we finally get to look behind the curtain and, reve and it reveals that the great and powerful Oz is actually just a bumbling old man from Kansas. Sorry if I've spoiled that for you, but you have had about 70 years to watch The Wizard of Oz. The other thing about apocalyptic literature is that for the most part, it wasn't really about the end times at all. It was more about the now times or the near times. There was, there was a little bit of what was to come, but it was often sort of saying, okay, you go through this, but this is what's happening at the end. This is what's going to happen at the end of it all. There was an awful lot more about explaining stuff that has already happened, albeit in symbolic form. What is happening now at the time of writing, and the purpose was about stirring people about how to live now. And if St John the Divine had been telling people, basically writing down what was going to happen 2,000 years from now, it wouldn't really have helped them very much at all. And that's why Orwell is a useful analogy. He was writing while Stalin was still alive. He was critiquing what was actually happening. Now, reading Revelation is what another author called Nick Page, who's got a book called Revelation Road, he says, it, he says to read it well, you need a disciplined imagination. He says, you need imagination. Both those words are important. Imagination is required because it isn't literal. 
and it's literature, not a timetable. You're reading Revelation really, really badly if you try to make it into a timetable. Most of the nonsense written about the book tries to take it too literally. But it also requires discipline. Because there is actually meaning behind it. You don't just get a free hand making up a scheme. And then trying to impose it on the whole book. And Nick Page says in the book, he says, Revelation is the ultimate theological homebrew kit. And thousands of people have made moonshine with it. Or the author of 20th century, G.K. Chesterton, once said that John saw many strange creatures in his visions, but he saw no creature so wild as one of his own commentators. Another book which I think is really excellent on the book of Revelation is by Eugene Peterson, who's probably most famous for reading the message, the paraphrase of the Bible. And he's written a great book on Revelation called Reversed Thunder. And in it, he makes two really important points, which will also be what I'm focusing on for the rest of this morning. Because he says, he says, one first one is this. He says, people get interested in everything in this book except God. They lose themselves in symbol hunting, intrigue with numbers, speculating with frenzied imagination on times and seasons, despite Jesus strictly warning against it. And then he says, nothing is more explicit in this book than it's about God. It's actually in the opening title. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not the end of the world, not the identity of the Antichrist, not a cosmic historic timetable. And the other thing he says, which is vitally important, is that the revelation is showing us what is obvious or what is not obvious, but is nevertheless deeply true. Not obvious, but deeply true. Not obvious, deeply true. Because there are two things which even Hal Lindsay and the writers of Azilk do get right. Because, I mean, even a stopwatch tells the right time twice a day. But they do get two things right. Revelation does claim that God is active in human history and is ultimately sovereign. And it does claim that the Lamb of God will win. Neither of those things are obvious, but both of them are deeply true. When I set up this series, I give you a big picture overview of the Bible story and how it opened with the story of creation and our place within it, that we live in relationship with God to the top, with others to the right-hand side, with creation underneath the person in the middle, and with ourselves the person in the mirror on the left-hand side of it. But the story of the Scriptures is high. Somewhere in the midst of all that, the whole network of relationships is broken. 
It's made choices, not just by our primal ancestors, but the choices each one of us makes. And we live cut off from all of these relationships in alienation or exile. But God doesn't give up. And through Abraham and then a people, God reaches out to bless them and in turn to take their blessing into the world. And that was the mission of Israel. But they fall into the same old traps and the Old Testament ends with us no further forward than we were at the end of Genesis 11. And that's the bulk of the Old Testament story in around 60 words. But God doesn't give up. He sends Jesus into the world. He comes amongst us as flesh and blood. He truly reveals what God is like. But he's rejected, sadly, actually, really sadly, mostly by religious types like me. They hand him over to the political powers of his day to be brutally executed. And we've looked at that part of the story over the last couple of weeks. But this turns out to be God's surprising victory. Jesus takes on the full force of the evil of the world. He empties it of his power. Humanity and the world does its worst to God, and God simply pronounces forgiveness. They do the worst to Jesus they possibly can and kill him, and God raises Jesus from the dead. And the resurrection is a sign that you can, they can do whatever they want. It's not going to stop God fulfilling his purposes for the world. And then in other weeks, we've touched on the church part of the story. We looked at some of the letters and uh, we've, uh, you know, yeah, and how God sends his Holy Spirit to the church to empower them to the task of telling them of God's love, breaking down barriers that God has erected, or sorry, humanity has erected, race, class, tribe, nation. God has made all of us right with God, whoever we are, with each other, has made us right with, with, with each other, and we can be free of guilt and shame. And that part of the story is still ongoing. It's been a 2,000-year word-of-mouth campaign that we are called to join in. But the story is still not over. It has an ending. There's a promise that one day God will come home and make his home amongst us. Notice, as we read Revelation, it is not about us going somewhere else. We ain't fly flying away anywhere. God comes home to us. That has been his attention all along. He will finally heal and restore all that is broken in the world. He will wipe every tear from our eyes. He will bring an end to death and mourning and crying and pain. He will bring unity to all of these relationships. He will restore things to how he created it to be. We will be made new, living an indestructible life of God, which is coursing through our new bodies. And having been made fully new, we will share in ruling his new creation, his new heaven and his new earth. And that is where John is taking it. But as we reflect on that story this morning, those words of Eugene Peterson might resonate. It might be obvious, or it might not be true. It might not be, it might be deeply true, Andrew, but it's not obvious. The story, the reality that the scriptures invite us to embrace is not obvious. In a few weeks' time, we're going to celebrate the Christmas story. We're going to talk of the Son of God, the King of Kings, being born in a backwater town 
to nobodies from nowhere. It's not obvious. That child grows into a man. He calls some people to follow him. He leads them up a mountain. And he starts by telling them who is truly blessed. The poor in spirit. Those who mourn. The meek. It's not obvious. Even John the Baptist, who leapt in his mother's womb when Mary came to visit his mother Elizabeth, who announced Jesus as the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world. He says he's the one that's going to baptize us all with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then he's in prison. And he sends a delegation to Jesus to say, did I get this right? Are you really the Messiah? Because I'm sorry, it's not obvious. In Corinthians, Paul wrote that the idea that the true Lord of the world would end up crucified, that was offensive to the very people who were supposed to get it, the Jews, and utter madness to the rest of the world, the Gentiles. It didn't make sense. It wasn't obvious. In the past, I've tried to explain Revelation to you as being like a tapestry, except that we're on the wrong side of the tapestry. It just looks like we are looking at a massive tangle of threads. And Revelation is like you get a glimpse right round the other side, and the real picture is revealed. In Revelation, John is saying, oh, he's getting a glimpse of the other side of the tapestry. And we see the world so often at surface level. But John sees underlying all of that. It's another spiritual reality. A battle for our allegiance. Are we going to side with the powers of this world? Or are we going to side with Jesus, the true Lord of the world? But we don't see it. Because it's not obvious. It's not obvious that Jesus is Lord when you read or hear the news headlines on this week or on any week. Much of the focus of Remembrance Sunday is the First World War, 1914 to 1918. And they said it would be the war to end all wars. And oh dear God, how I wish they'd been right. But you know, the very fact that we call it the First World War tells its own story. They didn't call it the First World War back then. They were a bit more optimistic. They weren't expecting the sequel. And right now, night after night after night, our news screams, what a sick joke, the idea that there was a war to end all wars was. Because it doesn't seem obvious that the light is winning. It doesn't seem obvious sometimes that the light is overcoming the darkness. Martin Luther King once declared that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. But I'll be honest, 
Some days I'm not so sure. Some days it's far from obvious. And that's why we need faith and hope. Hebrews defines faith as a confidence in what we hope for, an assurance of what we do not yet see. Or in Romans 8, Paul writes, hope is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? And we need faith and hope because the life Jesus calls us to live is not obvious. True faith and true hope need the Holy Spirit for only she can open our eyes to see that there is more going on here. To whisper assurance to us in the midst of all things. But the last chapters of Revelation tell us of a God who started the ball rolling and hasn't given up on it and isn't going to give up on it. He will make his home amongst us. And just as it's easy to get caught up in all the weird imagery, time, season, timetables, and miss God in the midst of it all, so when John comes to describe the New Jerusalem, we can be distracted by all the wrong things. I once heard a preacher comment how when he asks people what they expect to see in heaven, he is shocked that even amongst Christians, Virtually no one ever mentions Jesus. And even how John describes this might distract us. It's a city of pure gold. It measures 1,400 miles high, 1,400 miles wide and long. This is massive. And there are walls made of jasper, foundations of jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, ruby, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, turquoise, jacinth, amethyst, and pearly gates and streets of gold. It is bling central. And it's easy to get distracted by all of that. But we mustn't lose sight that the very most precious thing will be God himself. It needs no temple because God's presence is there. Or lamp, for the lamb will be its lamp. It has a promise of safety and healing. Towards the end of chapter 21, we read of how it might have those pearly gates, but they never shut because there's no real threat. And right down the middle, don't know how it quite works because there's, tr there's a tree on either side of a river, but... It's poetry. Right down the middle is a tree whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. All of the relational chaos will find its healing. Where there is discord, God will bring harmony. The Spirit will bring healing to socioeconomic differences, language differences, tribal differences, customal differences, racial differences, all the divisions that we create and have caused so much harm in our world will find healing in the presence of the life-giving God. What a longing for a Remembrance Sunday. And it might not be obvious 
Because it is a hope. It is a longing. And nobody longs for what they already have and see. But God declares it is deeply true. And no wonder the dominant word in those closing sentences is come. Come, Lord Jesus. Our world is broken and fragmented in every possible way. And it needs that healing. It groans. It longs for it. Come. Come, Lord Jesus. And the Bible tells us in these final chapters that all of the rebellion and all the resistance of the powers of this world will not speak the final world. They will not defeat God's eternal purposes for his creation. Exile and alienation will not last forever. The universe and the people in it are God's. To reclaim his creation, God sent his son Jesus Christ into the world. And when all the evil in the world did its worst to him, he breathed forgiveness over it and defeated it. God raised Jesus to new life and invites us to share in that life, starting now, lasting for eternity. And on Remembrance Sunday, it is worth noting that there will be an end to war, that swords will be turned to plowshares and spears will be turned to pruning hooks. No longer will our imagination and our money be just poured into ever more inventive ways to destroy one another. But new life will flow from a tree which brings healing to the nations. Our hopes, our longings, our prayers will ultimately be answered with God's resigning yes. Our future with God and his new heavens are almost beyond description. And they're certainly not obvious. But they are deeply true. For God is the solid reality. Death itself has been defeated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Eternal life beginning now, an intimate relationship with a loving heavenly father is held out to me and to you. A healing of these broken relationships with God, each other, creation and even our very selves. It's the story we are being invited into and to participate in, taking our place in the ultimate destiny. It's a story that's not obvious. It never has been. It's always needed faith. It's always needed hope. Not just to hear, but to live in that story. But it's a story God's been working towards and, it, and he will bring it to completion. And because of God, even though it's not obvious, it is deeply true. Grace and peace be with you.